Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Crossrail finally opens with 10 new central London stations. Public ownership takes centre stage in Old Oak Commons redevelopment vision. City Hall sets out plans for a new user-friendly website to review major planning applications. And could a new renters reform bill help out London's most precarious private tenants? My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Deborah Sorn. Deborah is the founding director of DSDHA. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to see you. This week, London's long-awaited Crossrail, also known as the Elizabeth Line, finally opened. Four decades after the scheme was initially proposed, four years later than planned, and around £4 billion over budget. The public opening and first few days of the service have been hard not to miss, as both the national and London publications all weighed in with their first impressions of the new East-West line. The AJ, BBC, Guardian and Evening Standard all covered the opening, and social media has been awash with people sharing images, videos and their initial hot takes of this calm and quiet new addition to the capital's transport network. Indeed, thousands of eager visitors queued to experience Europe's largest infrastructure project, costing £19 billion, increasing London's transport capacity 10% at its public opening on Tuesday morning. Integrating new and existing infrastructure, the project includes the construction of 10 new stations, eight of them underground, as well as upgrades to 31 existing stations to accommodate the line's 240-metre-long trains. That's roughly twice as long as most underground stations. The central London landscape has also been transformed both above and below ground as a result. Grimshaw, the architect behind London Bridge's renewal, was appointed to lead the line-wide design which ties the subterranean network together, while practices including John McCaslin and Partners Adamson Associates, Allies and Morrison, ADAS, Wilkinson Air, Weston Williamson, Hawkins Brown and BDP designed the individual stations. So far, the public response has proved positive. However, many took to Twitter over the weekend to draw attention to the new London underground map, which with the addition of the purple Elizabeth line and interchange diagrams at Bank, Liverpool Street and Paddington, many accuse of compromising on clarity. So Deborah, what is the Elizabeth line or Crosswell? Uh, When was it first proposed and how does it tie into the existing London underground network? 
Well, first of all, I have to say I love infrastructure and I'm a complete transport geek. So I could go on and on about the Elizabeth line for a long time. Um, apparently, it was first proposed long before any of us were around back in the 40s. Uh, and it's a testament to the UK's total inability to do infrastructure because it's taken nigh on 70 or 80 years to get this thing to finally arrive. Um, so it's proposed just after the war when people realised that uh, London was sprawling and we needed effective uh, communication from east to west uh, so that people could get into the city and get out of the city easily. Tying into the uh, existing underground uh, system at several really important junctions. And one of the great facts I've discovered about it is it's going to change our perception of where the centre of London is because it used to be that most of the train lines crossed Oxford Circus. So you would say, oh, right, Oxford Circus, that's the kind of hub. But now it's going to be Tottenham Court Road. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, certainly interested in that shifting of the centre of London. I thought it was Farringdon was meant to be the centre, but you're saying Tottenham Court Road. Farringdon, definitely. So exciting to go through it yesterday and to hear the immortal words, change here for Luton and Gatwick Airport. It's, you know, you haven't been able to see that and feel that sense of connectivity in the centre. But in about, well, if it's anything to go by in about another 70 years, another line will come along called Crossrail 2. And that is going to pass through north-south uh, and really sort of compress our understanding of London again. But that's coming through Tottenham Court Road. So I think that's why I sort of think of it in those terms. And obviously... Um... We're all very excited about the, the architecture of the Elizabeth Line. Basically got 10 new stunning central London stations to explore and enjoy. Um, could you talk us through uh, what do you think of, of the design that's gone in, into it? Uh, what do you think of Grimshaw's designs for the platforms and ticket halls, that station, that line-wide design system? And also, what do you think of those um, individual standout stations of the new network? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to use my app yesterday my city mapper app and asked to get from liverpool street to tottenham court road and what was interesting it sent me to moorgate station and it was absolutely extraordinary really huge generous welcoming beautifully designed uh, entrance hall and above that some oversight development going on still on site so you really got the sense of wow this elizabeth line is is prompting people to build right in the centre again. It's really triggered a huge increase in building. Um, and when you enter in, it was completely frictionless. It was absolutely sublime, really. It, just beautiful experience of going through the ticket barriers and then down, and I should say it was sublime and then it became quite scary because they are some of the deepest escalators allowed. Uh, God forbid you drop something. But I was completely transfixed by just this spatial dynamics, uh, amazing generosity of height. You can tell that there's an appropriate amount of expenditure has been placed on making it feel welcoming and safe. You come down to platform level and there are beautifully curved corners get taking you around on routes, whereas I'm sure we've all experienced in the London Underground, that's the, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, excuse me moment when you bump into people on those really sharp intersections of one tubular tunnel with another in the pedestrian area. So it's it's really ergonomically designed and it's got great details. It's like being in a sci-fi movie because everything's 3D modelled and 3D man manufactured. So I I'd say it's a brilliant job. Fantastic. Um, so obviously 
it's spurred a lot of construction all through central London, but there's also been some major public realm upgrades which have taken place. Um, so your practice, DSDHA, created a new park called Exchange Square above the tracks of Liverpool Street Station recently. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this project and, and how it relates to that kind of um, re- rejuvenation of, of London's public realm around the Elizabeth Line? Yes, it's fantastic. One of the things they did safeguard when uh, presenting this whole proposal was how do you make the areas round better? The development I've been looking at is and have just completed is above the tracks of Liverpool Street Station. So it's a kind of London High Line. It's an example of retrofitting nature into the city. So we're hoping to see much more of this happen, where you take what was previously a very hard, quite masculine, marble-lined space with quite aggressive water feature made of boulders. Uh, And now we've replaced it with, uh, we basically bought in the best of the East Anglian landscape and floated it above the railway lines so that you can even see mist rise early in the morning as you're coming to, you know, coming to your office or to your workplace as you come out of the Elizabeth line or from the train station itself. Uh, You have lovely water features for children. So we've got new constituencies of children coming into the city of London. So the boundaries are being blurred everywhere as a result of this. I think we can really see the benefits of infrastructure as a as a kind of trigger for really good public benefit on the ground. And, and that's what's good about it. I think people talk a lot about the cost and the engineering, which is fine, but that's a kind of old rhetoric. I think we have to look at how it affects people's everyday lives. It's much easier now to travel out in the suburbs between locations than it was before, not just into the centre. And it's it's going to have a really transformative effect. Obviously, the map makers, they're getting a bit of heat. Okay, so the London Underground map, you know, widely recognised around the world as being a great piece of design. Um, However, many pundits, especially online pundits, uh, have been accusing the addition of the Elizabeth Line, the new purple route through the centre, as being um, ill thought out, confusing and messy. Um, Have you had uh, what do you think of the new map? If you had a chance to look over it um, and how these interchanges have been drawn on, uh, does it need a rethink? Is it up to standards? I think in your mind's eye, the tube map is an elegant composition of of very beautiful coloured lines, all tonally blending wonderfully. And it is a kind of work of art. And at the time, back in the 30s, it was a very simple system that you were illustrating. And now it's fantastic what we have in London in terms of integrated transport, because it's not just telling you about the underground map. It's telling you about the overground map. It's telling you about the, the DLR, another piece of infrastructure it's telling you about the journey from Essex all the way to Reading it's um, it's actually dealing with a kind of whole ecosystem of transport and I think it could be redesigned to make it easier but if you're there and you're not tax savvy and use your apps which the majority of people use now for transport you will find the information you need on that map. So it is really good in terms of telling you that you can walk between stations, for example, in under a few minutes. It's telling you where you have ramped access, uh, where you need to ask, you know, for example, where you have a few steps, but not many steps. It's got, it's absolutely, maybe it's just got too much information in one place uh, visually, but in terms of what there is there, it's, it's really impressive. I would just like to add the most shocking underground or transport map you can look up is that of step-free access in London on the underground and integrated transport. 
it's truly extraordinary. This sort of disability access map is a shock because it shows a complete lacuna, a kind of void in the centre of London, where there's hardly, even with this Elizabeth line, there's hardly any disabled access. It's round the newer parts, the sort of perimeter of uh, London, that you can have disability access. And, and when we say disability, we think, oh, that's only just a few people. Let's just call it step-free access. It's people with buggies, trolleys, mobility aids, but which many people have. And it's also for bikes. And I think we really need to put the focus now on the disenfranchisement of people who need step-free access, particularly in the centre. We're spending millions on museums and galleries and public realm, but people can't get to it. It's, it's really, really hard to move around in the centre of the city still. Eleanor Fawcett, head of design at the Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation, has revealed bold plans for the public sector to take centre stage in buying up land, recruiting architects and creating a new town centre in West London. Uh, This story, which heralds a big shift from conventional private sector-led approaches to large-scale regeneration, was covered by last week's guest, Will Ng, in the AJ, following Eleanor Fawcett's speech at an AJ100 lunch last week. The Old Oak Common development area spans three boroughs, Ealing, Brent and Hammersmith and Fulham, totalling an area of 650 hectares. Uh, The Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation is a mayoral development corporation overseeing the £1 billion project to redevelop one of the UK's largest industrial estates into a new super suburb with 25,500 homes. Speaking to some of London's most influential architects, Fawcett said she expected the corporation to start buying up land around the forthcoming Old Oak Common HS2 station soon, uh, using a £50 million grant it received from the Greater London Authority last month. She went on to say, quote, Essentially, the proposal is to create a single delivery agency for the public sector land to be able to take a fully coordinated comprehensive approach to the delivery of this scheme, which would actually unlock a lot of the infrastructure funding. Uh, Fawcett went on, uh, it would also enable some of the developments to come on stream, if you'd like, in time for HST's opening in 2030, uh, so it opens into a piece of city rather than how the area is today. Um, Fawcett also added uh, that the Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation is currently working with around 50 architecture companies, uh, but will be recruiting many more practices to help with the design of the new town centre at Old Oak. Um, So, Deborah, could you tell us a bit more about this Old Oak Common area? Uh, What's it currently like uh, and why does it have so much potential? Well, Old Oak Common is an extraordinary area because it's so important now, but none of us really knew about it until relatively recently. It's it's the kind of back of house, uh, the kind of service yard of northwest London. And uh, it's a place of warehouses, industry, uh, lots of goods yards. And it's just got huge potential because HS2, the other big problematic infrastructure project um, that has got the go ahead for its first phase is going to go through and have a stop at Old Oak Common. And that's going to completely transform again our understanding of what London is. It is planned that it's going to be really a new town centre. So again, it's a huge opportunity and and one that I really congratulate Eleanor on her pushing for a good legacy for this project because she was on the Olympics. She really did a great job there. Uh, and so she's bringing that knowledge over to the, from east to west. So fingers crossed that they get it right. So it's very good news. 
And just thinking, obviously, in London's recent development history, large-scale regenerations, we've actually had quite a few, like the Olympics, Nine Elms, etc. But it's quite, it can be quite unusual to see the public sector, a public sector agency, uh, playing such a central role in buying up significant swathes of land. So what is the significance of this step now that Ellen is uh, taking? And also, why is this bold delivery method necessary uh, to transform this area, Old Oak Common in particular, in a way that will actually allow its full potential to be unlocked? Well, it's it's really necessary because if you want to get the infrastructural skeleton on which you hang a city so that it really, if you think of the city as a body, if you don't have a strong structure, the skeleton to hold it together, and you don't have ease of movement of all your arteries and the blood, etc., uh, and great lungs, for example, you, you're going to, you know, being green spaces, you're going to find that it doesn't perform to its maximum and the opportunity will be lost. And if we think about northwest London, up there, we have amazing treasure troves of things going on. You know, there's actually the film industry is has a lot of, you know, the fashion that you see in Game of Thrones, those distressed outfits, they are bashed into shape, let's say, in small workshops around Old Oak Common. So there's something called the media wedge that comes in and uh, Old Oak Common will be at the heart of that. So we know there's loads and loads of potential. That's such a booming industry. So it's, it's really important that we build it and they will come, you know, to quote Kevin Costner, which isn't something I do very often. But um, it's, you know, if you look at our legacies of great cities, just recently announced is Milton Keynes. They built the structure they, with public money. They even built the shopping centre, uh, and it's now a listed building and it's just got city status. So it's, it's you know, along with Stevenage, Harlow, there are some great examples. But be warned, you can end up with Cumbernauld or other uh, less successful um, sort of top down town centres where the, the free market didn't <laughs> inform design. And you, you get people sort of stranded with these rather alien kind of shopping centres that don't work. So it's, it's a really interesting, important topic, what with the revolution going on in the high street, what will the high street of tomorrow be like? And, and obviously just sticking on that topic, one of those big infrastructural leaps has been that focus on public realm. Um, what kind of, what, how important is public realm going to be to, to, that, to Old Oak and that area around the station? Well, interchange design is something close to my heart, having worked near Liverpool Street, uh, as I mentioned, and um, Toncourt Road, and here in Vauxhall, where I'm based. One of the things we're finding with interchanges and the public realm is because we don't know what the future of mobility is, we have to keep it open-ended and flexible. When we started a project, as I mentioned, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have scooters we didn't have micromobility of um, the bikes that you can hire and drop off. And we didn't have, let's say, the same terrorist, terrorist threats. So uh, security is a really important element, but you want it to not impose itself upon you. So you have to work very carefully to make sure that that kind of secure area doesn't feel like a fortress. We've just done a secure area around Royal Albert Hall and we've made so much public space, people don't really notice that they're being looked after safely and that's what we want. Yeah, it's it's really important to make a, a great welcoming because we understand that life is one continuous journey to a destination. It doesn't just start when you get to the building, it starts when you leave home. So I think that's been the revolution in the last 10 years. 
And certainly, if you think about the past decade, uh, southwest central London, uh, a development of a similar scale to Old Oak Common took place in Nine Elms. Um, but yeah, how does the approach differ there from what's being proposed for Nine Elms by Eleanor Fawcett? Um, and also, as someone who knows the area, what do you actually make of what's happened in Nine Elms? Is it good? And could it have benefited from a tactic similar uh, to the Old Oak Common one? Oh, that's a really good reference, Merlin, there. Um we are based in Vauxhall, which is part of something called VNEB, which is uh, the Vauxhall, Nine Elms uh, and Battersea sort of territory, which was which was highlighted um, back in the sort of uh, late 1990s and early 2000s as the kind of hotspot under Ken Livingstone for tall buildings and growth. Again, it was one of these back of house areas. It was London's larder. Uh, it still is. It has the famous uh, Covent Garden food market and lots of distribution centres, etc. So uh, what happened there was, again, it was a kind of free market approach, which was to say, well, we have two boroughs sharing this area, Vauxhall and Wandsworth. Let's then just sort it out. We'll give you some limits on how high the buildings can go, but let's the free market will make it all happen. So lots and lots of uh, thwarted master plans uh, were made to unite the area People were talking about land swaps, you know, to make the the spaces work better with public realm, private sector not interested. This is my land. I'm developing. I'm developing it my way and I'm going to do what I want on my space and less of an integrated approach. And I think everybody would agree that it has suffered. It does have a linear park, which is basically a a sort of a wide strip (laughs) uh, linking Vauxhall to uh, Battersea Power Station, and that does have a benefit. It's not completed yet, but you will have somewhere to walk your dog. But it's not a it's not a park. It's tapped either end with a very good bit of of sill infrastructure funded by the developers, which was the two new tube stations on the north northern line extension. So the infrastructure at the transport level, they did get that right from that. That was a top down imposition uh, from the mayor, but in terms of the sort of generation of really meaningful and inclusive public space, um, it's not been the most successful. City Hall has announced it will soon be procuring a new public-facing website where Londoners will be able to view, monitor and comment on important and high-profile referred planning applications in the capital. A call for interest was put out on Twitter earlier this week as part of a bid by the Mayor of London's office to overhaul the way we as citizens engage with the planning system. Recent major planning applications referred to the Mayor of London have included the contentious Tulip Tower in the City of London and the proposed redevelopment of Oxford Street's M&S store, both are projects we have covered extensively on this show. The Greater London Act of 1999, as well as the subsequent Mayor of London orders, which impose an obligation on the Mayor to produce a spatial strategy for London, something that's known as the London Plan, give the incumbent Mayor unique statutory planning powers and responsibilities. Exercising these powers, Sadiq Khan and his office are looking to remodel their existing and reasonably complex back office planning system into an accessible website where the public will be able to view and comment on planning applications within their respective areas. Still in the early stages of development, City Hall is now kickstarting the procurement process to move the project forward. Companies interested in working on the new website are encouraged to contact City Hall to find out more about the specification. Um, so, Deborah, it currently is possible to access and monitor planning applications both uh, online at local authority and City Hall level. Um, but 
Could you tell us a bit about how this currently works and why it's so difficult to navigate, um, especially potentially for people who don't work in these architecture and urban planning industries? I I think the current system really has been desperately in need of a reboot. Currently with planning at the moment, you uh, have the glorious process of the laminated notice sort of zip tied to your local lamppost and Uh, If you're lucky enough to be somebody who walks past the lamppost, you might accidentally discover that something's happening. I mean, there have been extraordinary cases of local planning officers sort of accidentally uh, sort of not managing to post them close enough to the development site, which happened here in Vauxhall, actually, when they got permission to demolish the bus station. There was no notice where the hundreds of thousands of people who use the bus station go by to see that their shelter was going to be removed uh, and made way for some big towers. So the current system is utterly broken. If you are an interested party and lucky enough to be found by the planning officer, you might get a letter, this old-fashioned thing called a letter, uh, (laughs) received to your home address near the development site. And then you have to click, click, click and sort of go through this very time-consuming trawl downloading individual documents that often don't make sense to you to find out uh, what's going on. And they're they're not in 3D. It's not interactive. It's incredibly analog, uh, even though it's on a digital platform. So, yes, it definitely needs it definitely needs to be rebooted. And obviously, this is part of a bigger move to democratise uh, the planning system. Why is that so significant? Um, you know, why do Londoners really need to know a lot more about what's going on and their power to positively shape it? Um, and um, yeah, how does our urbanism suffer when so many people are not engaged or simply don't understand what's going on and feel really alienated? Well, what happens at the moment is that private interests have an in. there's an inequitable amount of power at play. So the private interests are definitely in control of planning much more than the general public. Uh, And luckily, uh, the the current mayor really sees that imbalance and is not only trying to change it with this new fantastic sort of one map uh, visualisation that you can go to see what's available, um, but also in terms of engagement, uh, understanding that people are being deprived that uh, ele- element of engagement and their voices are simply not being heard. And there, there are a whole sort of lobbying industry involved in planning that uh, work behind the scenes to influence politicians and uh, not officers so much, thankfully. But it's, it's, it's been kind of professionalised and it's out of reach of people. So it's really important that people have control of their own neighbourhood. And because what happens if you, things happen to you and you're not part of it, you feel alienated, you become withdrawn, you're less likely to report problems out in the street because you don't have faith in your local authority. And democracy is, is kind of undermined because democracy resides at a local level because people go out and vote for local councillors who make those decisions. Uh, And if that chain of of responsibility and respect for each other is broken, as we see in lots of areas, uh, bad things happen. A couple of weeks ago, it was announced in the Queen's speech that the government will introduce more stringent legislation to ensure better quality housing and stronger rights for private tenants. 
This story was reported by The Big Issue, uh, and a breakdown of what this could mean was published in the Evening Standard this week. Uh, the Renters' Reform Bill, which will seeks to abolish no-fault evictions, those are otherwise known as Section 21 notices, uh, as well as bolstering landlords' rights of possession, uh, will the government claims provide a, quote, fair and effective market for renters and landlords alike. Under the current system, as a private tenant, a landlord can issue a Section 21 notice, uh, which does not require a justifying reason for an eviction, uh, giving you just two months to move out of the property. The proposed abolition of these no-fault evictions under the Renters' Reform Bill has been welcomed by several charities. Um, This comes as new Ministry of Justice figures indicate that the number of Section 21 notices being dealt to renters is 30% higher than before COVID, uh, and more than 6,000 families in England Wales have recorded a no-fault eviction notice in the first three months of this year. Uh, The move follows intense pressure on the government to step up its efforts to help the millions of people facing spiralling costs uh, due to inflation in living costs. Uh, And it also comes as the Mayor of London renews calls for private rent caps, uh, something we covered recently on the show. Um, So, Deborah, what do you make of this new renters reform bill um, and what sort of difference do you think it could make for private renters in London? I think the new renters reform bill, on the face of it, sounds like a good thing in that we're going to get rid of the ability of of a landlord to just chuck somebody out with two months notice and no explanation and it's but but whether it becomes law I'll I'll believe it I'll you know believe it when I see it because Theresa May tried this back in 2019 uh, and it was meant to come in in 2021 it didn't duh Uh, And in the meantime, every year, people are being chucked out of their homes without uh, a care in the world by private owners who really don't think of the consequences. I mean, they're saying now on some websites that there are three prospective tenants per property. You know, there's it's basically there's not enough housing. And that's the core issue here. They're saying that homelessness is going to go up by a third in the next two years. That's a third. That's 33% more people being homeless. It is, somebody from Shelter said it is a tidal wave. You're going to see between now and 2024, you're going to see 66,000 more sofa surfing and temporary accommodation uh, moves, people being made incredibly vulnerable. Uh, And so for me, it's all, it's, it's, it's great that there's one tiny part of the puzzle but really where is the big picture on this and certainly it's coming in this context of this cost of living crisis and the government's getting enormous pressure over that um a big part of cost of living is like heating our homes and all this um stuff um is this bill enough to support people who are already in a quite vulnerable situation or is there something bigger and more encompassing that could be done from a built environment perspective well i think in terms of what's sort of buried in this also which is Good news is that they're asking all landlords to provide homes a decent a decent standard. Uh, at the moment, particularly in the north, there is just thousands and thousands of unforgivably awful uh, homes uh, going on, uh, you know, where people are being forced to live. So at least there'll be a benchmark now, not only for private landlords, but for public landlords, like the Salvation Army was mentioned a few weeks back you know, not responding quickly. They'll have an ombudsman who can help tenants take on landlords. Again, hopefully that will uh, remove that awful schism of the haves and haves not, have nots. Whether, again, if that happens, it would be great. Um, on an architectural scale, why don't people refurbish houses? You get charged 20% VAT on top of it. You know, there's no incentive 
to do up a place because it's bloody expensive and it's getting more expensive. And then you have failed initiatives so poorly put together, like the green and retrofit initiative that the government put forward that, you know, you could improve your house's, house's insulation or the boilers. No, hardly anybody could access the funding. It was a complete swizz. And it's it's a lot of uh, jaw-jaw and, you know, not war-war on housing. And I think you've got to remember, um, you know, what the priorities here. This it, it's, 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 it's enough to not put off homeowners and uh, private landlords, private buy-to-let landlords, changing their vote from right to left. So it's very political. And so this uh, renters' reform bill, it's being backed by Michael Gove, the levelling up and uh, housing secretary. It was a big piece in the Telegraph over the weekend with him sort of interviewed and pushing pushing this thing out there. Just thinking about 10 years ago, he was education secretary. Um, he really angered a lot of schools, students, uh, and especially architects uh, when he decided to scrap the... Uh, 55 billion pound building schools for the future program uh, something which the previous Labour government had set in motion um, what do you think now about um, Michael Goh's track record as this housing and levelling up secretary it seems to be getting quite a lot of headlines what's your verdict I mean where where are the new homes where is where is any vision to scale that will deal with levelling up from rich to poor north to south um, you've got to remember he's he's mates with with a prime minister who would like to see the return of right to buy to again to capture votes uh, so that would be a, you know to further reduce the amount of housing at this precise moment to even think of such a, an idea of right to buy for housing association tenants to diminish the number of homes we have and buy votes again so uh, i think it's 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 proven that people who vote are usually homeowners they're the most engaged in their local you know, local environment at public realm level. They are strategically more likely to vote at local authorities and uh, national elections. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of gerrymandering uh, by design. Well, we certainly talk a lot about the, the plight of uh, people in precarious housing uh, on the London. And we have a lot of architects on the show and architectural critics on the show uh, sort of dissecting the um, legislation and planning system and all this and how it impacts people, especially people who are private renting, uh, who are really trapped in a precarious situation. Um, I mean, what kind of things do you think architects could directly do to change the situation? Or is it just about, you know, go out on some protests, <laughs> wave a placard? Or is there actually anything the profession can do in terms of the buildings it's designing or in London or the sort of clients that it's working for in London? Or is this, is this bigger political economic conundrum? I think this is a bigger political and economic conundrum that has to be dealt with strategically at government level. But architects can have an impact at strategic level, uh, really, first of all, working out how influence is gained at government level. Uh, You know, making friends with people who there are architects working within government. There are urban designers working within government. They are there and available. You know, you, you will meet a, a broad constituency of urban designers, let's say, at Urbanistas, this fantastic women-led initiative to exchange ideas about the future of the city. If you hang out with that amazing bunch of women, you find yourself with people who are working for the department of this and the department of that, who do have a chance to try and push. Let's see what happens in the recent... Um, boroughs of Westminster and Wandsworth that have seen a flip from Conservative to Labour, it's going to be interesting to see at a local government level whether they can institute changes, because that's what's happened in Camden, where they have been able to 
um, you know, build more housing using their own initiatives, which do 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 attract criticism from some parties. More traditional um, sort of uh, campaigners find it difficult that local authorities turn developer and produce their own affordable housing. But they're you know they're trapped by government and government um, uh, constraints on what they can do. Fantastic. Um, we're on to the culture sector, the favourite bit of the show. So, um, got lots of things to discuss. One of the big things that's uh, in the pipeline uh, is the Open House Festival 2022, happening in September. It's our 30th anniversary. Uh, and there's a big milestone on the horizon. Um, that is uh, the deadline uh, for getting things in the printed festival guidebook. Uh, so, long time Open House fans will remember our beautifully produced guidebook, uh, which would go out before the festival every year listing all the amazing buildings and places and landscapes and um, community venues and so on and so forth that, um, that are open for you to visit uh, so we're bringing back the printed guidebook uh, and that means that if you're planning to put something in the festival um, you need to register on the website and let us know um, get all the submission done before the 1st of June otherwise you quite simply won't be in the book um, Debs have you um, put anything in the festival before in the past are you, you going to put the DSDHA studio? Oh, I was an early adopter of um, Open House in its infancy. I think I opened a hairdresser's once, <laughs> we one of our baby projects, and uh, we, we, we had an amazing number of people turn up because they people are dying to find out how buildings uh, come about, how they perform, who's behind it, uh, and, and, and everybody has that inner child in them from making a den uh, which gets beaten out of them at school that, you know, it's a professionalised world to make your environment and influence it. It surges in later life when people start doing extensions and they get into their garden. But I'm all for really opening it up. So, yes, hopefully we will have our studio open. We always have a really big uh, number of people who come and see this extraordinary warehouse that we've modified um, down in Vauxhall. But also we, we do try and get our clients to come along on the ride and generally they do. It's been fantastic, and it certainly is is quite an amazing book that one because um it's uh it's huge. There's loads of buildings in it, but it always lists the name of the architects next to it. Um, and um when it was going out uh, in its previous print runs, went to tens of thousands of people. One is thought to be one of the biggest architectural publications uh, in the country uh, with quite a wide audience. Pre-orders for the printed festival guidebook will be on sale from next week. Uh, if you can't wait until then, just have a look at Open City's other publications, which are available in our shop. The last bit of our culture section, uh, there's a new book uh, out. It's by uh, Vicky Spratt, and it's called Tenants, the people on the front line of Britain's housing emergency. Uh, I've not had a read yet, but it seems pretty topical, uh, considering what we've just been discussing on the show. Yeah, it sounds like a great, uh, a great book. And I was really impressed at the reviews it had uh, on the website because you've got a completely diverse number of people commenting from Metro, the Evening Standard, and even Cosmopolitan are, re are recommending it. So there you go. It must be one to watch. Fantastic. Um, Deborah Sorn, it's been a great pleasure to feature you on the show this week. Uh, fantastic insights and commentary. Um, where can our listeners uh, keep up to speed on the projects you're working on? Uh, is there a website? Is there socials, TikTok account or Insta they should go to? 
Yeah, we've got a really, do, do look at our Instagram account, DSDHA Architecture. It's got videos, it's got the background stories to these great buildings because we really want to show the process of design rather than just the product so that people can really feel part of it. Fantastic. Thanks again for being on the show. Hope to have you again soon. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.